Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Ron Jude, Professor of Photography at the University of Oregon. Jude's photographs have been widely exhibited nationally and internationally and are held at the permanent collections of the George Eastman House in Rochester, New York, the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, among others. Jude is the author of 10 books, including Emmett, 2010, Lick Creek Line, 2012, Lago, 2015, and most recently, 12 Hertz. His book, Lick Creek Line, was named one of the best books of the year by Foam Magazine and Photo District News, among others. He has received grants or awards from Lightwork, San Francisco Camera Work, the Aaron Siskin Foundation, and the Friends of Photography, and he held a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship in 2019. His recent project, 12 Hertz, was organized and supported by the Barry Lopez Foundation for Art and Environment and is on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon through March 13th, 2022. Thanks, Ron, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. So tell us first a little bit about your background. Um, okay, my uh, the long story or the short story? Short story is good. Okay. Um, I was uh, born in California, uh, raised in Idaho, um, introduced to contemporary art through photography uh, in classes that I was taking in college. Uh, went on to get a graduate degree uh, in fine art in uh, Louisiana at LSU in Baton Rouge. And then just sort of struck out at that point, which was the early 90s, and um, tried to have a career in art and education. And uh, sort of it took me all around the country, upstate New York for about 20 years. And I landed here in uh, Oregon at University of Oregon um, in 2015. So what inspired you to turn specifically to photography? Um, I, I, I think I have, the, the answer I have for that is the answer I shouldn't have, which is basically, I was a teenager, I had a camera, I you know, geeked out on the gear. And that's, you know, no serious photographer wants to admit that. Um, but that, you know, that was the truth. And when I got to college, I literally had no sense of um, photography in the context of fine art. Um, but I, I was introduced to that through taking classes in the art department uh, with uh, my mentors, Howard Huff and Brent Smith. And um, it opened up the whole world to me. And suddenly it wasn't about the gear anymore. And it was about images and um, the, the strange unending problem of representing things through photographs. So let's talk about the 12 Hertz project. First, tell us about the title of the project. Why, what, why that name? Uh, 12 Hertz is a reference to sound. <clears throat> and it's uh, specifically a reference to the lowest threshold of sound that is perceptible, perceptible to human beings. Um, and if you Google that, you're probably gonna get 20 Hertz. That's what's gonna come up in the Wikipedia. Um, and this is based on something that I had read about laboratory testing and very controlled conditions um, that we were able to perceive all the way down to uh, 12 Hertz. And the idea behind the title was to basically reference this limit of human perception, these things that are sort of happening outside of um, things that we can sort of pick up on without directly referencing something uh, in the visual world. I wanted to create an analogy through sound. Um, and so 12 Hertz um, 
was initially a working title for the project and then it just sort of stuck, uh, especially um, I've had a previous interest in sound and as it relates to photographs and then specifically with this project, uh, there is a, an additional sound component to the installation uh, by a collaborator and friend of mine named Joshua Bonetta. So since you, you bring up Joshua Bonetta, let's talk a little bit about the collaboration between the two of you and, and also give us a sense of what the audio installation is like. Um, so the audio installation, if, if you walk into the space, it's, you know, like the title of the, of, the, of the work, it's sort of barely perceptible. It's one of those things that sort of rolls in and out as you move through the exhibition. And the idea behind the installation and how that sound is supposed to work is that it's supposed to sort of um, activate something in engaging the photographs that uh, wouldn't be there if the sound wasn't a part of the installation. But it's also not something that's so overbearing in the space that um, it creates an imbalance between the images and the sound. Um, and if, if you pick up on it, it's one of those things that kind of moves in and out there are moments where you really kind of hear it and feel it and it's, it's um, you know, doing something with the images and then it, it sort of slips away for a few minutes. Um, so that was the idea in terms of how it was supposed to work. And it's a really fascinating composition of sound in the sense that it consists of um, uh, seismic uh, tectonic plate movement uh, recordings that were site specific to the places that I uh, made the photographs. These were sourced from uh, the Earth Sciences Department here at University of Oregon, uh, but Josh was in conversation with them to get those recordings. And basically what happens is they speed them up so that you can actually hear them. And so what you're hearing in the space is actually, you know, tectonic plates sort of rubbing up against each other um, and seismic movement um, mixed with uh, site-specific uh, field recordings that Josh made here in Oregon. So he and I went out um, for a week or so here in Oregon in 2017. While I was making photographs, he was uh, doing everything from dropping hydrophones in the water to using a shotgun mic to record the waves, a contact mic on trees. You can hear the creaking of trees. Um, and he just, he takes all of that back to the studio and just sort of layers it and creates a composition. So you, you mentioned that you see the uh, the sound component as a kind of um, analog to the visual component. Tell us about the visual component. I mean, um, how did you, how do you that translation of your description of what the sound is like versus what the photographs are like? Well, in some of the photographs, there's a, a pretty literal kind of translation of that title, like this, this idea of things that are just about to sort of fall outside of our perception. There are a couple of images that um, if you've seen the show, they're you know quite dark. At first it appears that you're looking at a, a just a blank black image. And as you sort of move closer to it, it starts to sort of open up and you can start to see detail in it. Um, and that happens to varying degrees throughout uh, the show. Um, but in the more sort of figurative sense, you know, I was really interested in looking at geological phenomena that uh, suggested change that was happening all around us all the time. Things that, um, the, you know, the mechanics of the planet that, um, is, that are in constant flux and yet, you know, we sort of go about our uh, very sort of myopic uh, lives as human beings uh, without any sense of this happening around us. So where did you go? Where, where did you take these photographs? 
Um, I started here in Oregon. So I, as I mentioned, I moved here in 2015 to take a position in the art department at UO. And I, just as a matter of wanting to sort of discover the area around me, I was, you know, coming out here from the East Coast and Oregon seemed like such a spectacular place to be. And I, you know, at, at first it started just as a, a, a kind of routine exploration of the area. And then I just, I started to make images as I was going out and without any real uh, intention for them beyond just sort of exploring. Um, and at a certain point, I started to see something crystallizing with the photographs. I started, I was, I was reading certain people like uh, Robert McFarlane and Paul Kingsnorth and Barry Lopez. And I was starting to think about environmental ideas, how those could be translated through images without creating a, like an explicit polemic uh, in the work um, to create like an experience uh, that uh, ran parallel to those ideas. And eventually I started putting something together that seemed to get some traction. Um, I showed a few of them uh, at my Los Angeles gallery in 2018. Um, and with that exhibition, I really kind of got my head around what, what this was going to be. And so I, I also, uh, at that time, applied for a Guggenheim Fellowship to expand the work because there were things that, you know, Oregon is amazing and it's a pretty uh, diverse set of things that I was getting here. But I also wanted to look at a certain type of uh, glacier. Uh, I wanted to look at fresher lava flows on the east uh, east side of Kilauea in Hawaii. So I, I eventually ended up making trips to Iceland, um, Hawaii, uh, Northern California, New Mexico. Um, and all of that was happening in a very sort of hurried fashion right before the pandemic. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of lucky that I, I finished most of the principal shooting prior to that time and then was sort of able to go into the post-production mode. So tell us a little bit about that post-production mode. I mean, when you go to see these, these photographs at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum, the scale of them is massive. They're, they're some of the largest photographs I've ever seen. How did you do that? And why did you do that? Why, why was that kind of scale so important for you? Um, that's a good question because it's, you know, that's, it's one of the questions that I always have with any body of work. Um, you know, once it becomes not just an image, but a sort of an object that has to occupy a space, you know, you're think, you're considering the experience that the viewer is going to have with the piece. And so I always go through this process of creating prototypes at various scales, uh, printing on different papers, trying to sort of figure out what these need to be as objects. And um, there was a part of me that didn't want to make such large work because it's, <laughs> it's it makes everything more expensive. It's kind of a hassle. Um, but ultimately, you know, I made prototypes at that scale and it just seemed like they, that scale took the images out of the realm of what we might call like fine art landscape photography and into the realm of something that had a, a much sort of greater kind of visceral impact when uh, you sort of encounter the work. So that, um, you know, that process was probably, I, I went through over six months or so figuring it all out and then um, I'm here in my studio at the Center for Art Research in downtown Eugene, and I have a, a printer right here that I, I make all of the prints here in my studio. And what about the choice to use black and white? Um, that was also um, a, a consideration that I had to really think about because I actually haven't worked in black and white since the late 80s. So I've been you know, primarily a color photographer 
um, for decades. Um, and I wanted to sort of stir things up with my own work at that point. I had sort of finished a cycle of work in, in like 2017 with the publication of a book called Nausea. And I was sort of looking at that cycle as something that I wanted to step away from at that moment. Um, I was also thinking about the nature of the things that I was looking at in these photographs. And I, I looked at them in color and in black and white and ultimately landed on uh, making the entire work uh, in black and white based on the sort of reductive nature of that medium and what that did to the kind of impact of the, the things that I was looking at. So as I mentioned, 12 Hertz was organized by the Barry Lopez Foundation for Art and Environment and comes to the JSMA through their support. Tell us a little bit about the Barry Lopez Foundation and how that the foundation became involved with the project. Um, so the Barry Lopez Foundation for Art and Environment uh, was uh, started by the director, uh, the founding director, Toby uh, Jerovics. And um, Toby was a curator at the Jocelyn Museum in Omaha, Nebraska, and was aware of this work. And he had seen some of the work at uh, my gallery in Los Angeles. And uh, he was putting together this idea with Barry uh, of creating a, a, a foundation that would basically start conversations around the environment through art, um, basically as a sort of initiator of conversation. And um, he was looking for um, his initial offerings for exhibitions. And the idea behind the, the whole foundation is that they put together traveling exhibitions that are offered for free to museums, uh, other types of institutions in the spirit of education. Um, and he reached, uh, Toby reached out to me in December of 2019, I think. And, and we started the conversation about uh, doing this exhibition, uh, Barry, who, as you know, lived right up the river in uh, uh, up, up the McKenzie River, uh, came down to Eugene. We spent some time in the studio, had a great conversation about the work. He, he really got it and was excited about uh, having this work be a part of the foundation. Um, and then sadly, as you know, uh, the fires happened, uh, his studio was destroyed, uh, part of his house was destroyed. And um, a couple of months later, Barry passed away in December of uh, 2020. So it, we were really excited to do this exhibition here in Eugene so Barry could be a part of that. Um, but unfortunately, he wasn't, he wasn't able to. Yeah, it's another aspect that adds power uh, to, the, to the, the exhibit. It, it's really a, it's so powerful to think about uh, Barry Lopez having been involved with uh, the selection process and so forth, um, especially given his passing and the tragedy was, of the burning of the, of the studio. Yeah, it was a huge honor for me to have him here in my studio because his writing is, uh, you know, obviously has had such a huge impact, impact on this conversation for decades and certainly had an impact on, on my own work as I was making it. And, and 12 Hertz is the inaugural show from the foundation, isn't that right? Uh, yes, there are two exhibitions, uh, a video installation by Janet Biggs and 12 Hertz, um, uh, my exhibition. And so they're, they're both sort of the inaugural exhibitions. I believe 12 Hertz opened first, but <laughs> um, yeah, they, they're both launching the foundation. 
So you've already given us a sense uh, in passing of um, some differences in 12 Hertz from some of your earlier work. Um, tell us about one of your earlier uh, projects. Um, so the, the project that I did just prior to coming to Oregon and the book that I published right when I got here was a project called Lago. And Lago was landscape based, although I always like to point out that I, I've never really worked with a pure landscape as my subject. So landscape sort of serves as a backdrop in that body of work. And um, up to that point, I was really interested in books, specifically the sort of sequential structure of books and how photographs operated in a very specific context. And in Lago, I was looking at the area around uh, the Salton Sea in Southern California and how that landscape um, sort of shaped my earliest memories. Uh, back in the 1960s, I was uh, living not too far from there with my parents and they used to recreate on the Salton Sea, which if you've been there lately, you probably can't imagine that happening. Um, but uh, some of my earliest memories are from that area. And so I was uh, sort of constructing this idea around human cognition, memories, narrative, uh, how we put all of that together to kind of uh, give our lives meaning and shape. And that, that work was all done in color and it was done over a period of about four years, making multiple trips out there um, from New York and ultimately publishing the book uh, with Mac, my publisher in London. And then the exhibition sort of came after that. This particular body of work, 12 Hertz, I was really excited to reverse that process and think about singular images, certainly how they work as a body of work, but not so much sort of lockstep in a sequence. And I was interested in scale and installation. And I wanted to think about exhibition before I thought about a book. So I just sort of flipped all of that around. Is that the first time you thought about exhibition before you thought about the book? No, uh, earlier in my career, um, just by default, because publishing books was sort of out of my reach at that point. Um, I, I always thought about exhibitions before books. But in 2006, I published my first book. And from that point, really until 2015, um, I was kind of fixated on that form and everything I did, although it all ultimately ended up in exhibitions, um, I was really primarily thinking about the book form as I made the work. You are also the co-founder of A Jump Books. Tell us about that endeavor. Yeah, so that was um, something that uh, my partner and I, Danielle Merkel, started in 2006 uh, in Ithaca, New York. And that basically came out of the, the publication of my first book, which was self-published. It was a, a book called Alpine Star. And going through the process of figuring out how to publish a book on my own, um, I learned a lot about the process and, and Danielle and I had this idea that we would give a name to it and uh, basically facilitate um, other books for other artists who needed help with that process. And so we came up with this name, A Jump Books. And over the course of 10 years or so, we published, I think, a dozen books with other artists, including Danielle. Uh, and we've since kind of uh, moved away from that aspect of our creative lives. But uh, it's, it's something that's still out there. And we, we published some amazing books by uh, people like Isabella Wirtz, um, Michael Ashkin, Nicholas Molnar, um, and some of them uh, did you know, quite well in terms of critical reception. 
So in addition to being a photographer, and I'm sure it's quite clear to anyone who's watching this or listening to this, you are also an educator. Yes. Yeah. That's how how been, do you approach? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that's been pretty central to everything I do for quite a long time, about you know 25 years or so. So tell us about how you approach the task of teaching photography. Um, well, teaching photography is is always a little bit of a slippery prospect, and it really does depend on the context in which you're teaching it. And I've always taught it in the context of art, um, and, you know, and somebody teaching it in the context of journalism is going to teach it in a very different way. Although I think at the center of all of that, you're always going to find, you know, certain sort of ethical questions that always come up, uh, come up about the medium of photography. You know, who has the right to photograph what and who and who gets to see it? Who is the audience? Where is that power dynamic? Those are central questions to any form of the medium, I think. And so that's that becomes a part of what I ask in the classroom, as well as just sort of introducing my students to the way in which photography is in dialogue with contemporary art. Uh, photography does have a tendency to sort of uh, put itself out on the margins and it, it kind of has its own language and its own audience. And I'm really interested in how that, that language and audience kind of uh, drifts over into the realm of uh, contemporary art and that conversation. Is there a class among those you teach that you particularly like and that you could tell us about? I'm right at the moment, I'm teaching a class that I developed back in 2009 called the photo book. So it's, I, I became so heavily involved in uh, the book making process that it made sense for me to try to translate that into a class for my students. And so I've been doing this for a while and I'm still doing it here at University of Oregon. And it's just, it's, it, I love that class. It's an incredibly, it's something that I bring both practical knowledge to, as well as, you know, just my own kind of enthusiasm for the form. Um, and the students, I feel like it's a, a an easy class to see epiphanies happening in terms of what that form does to the work. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, it sounds from your description that you have a, a kind of theoretical or historical component to the courses, and then there's a practical component. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say that's true with all of, uh, not, not only the classes in the photography area in the art department, but really all of the classes. We, we all, I think, approach um, teaching art, not just from the sort of strictly studio art perspective, but also that, you know, the stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's part of the culture, and there are all sorts of things that sort of inform um, creative practices and representation, and that those are things that our students need to sort of think about and understand as they're making work. It's not just a skill set. It's also sort of thinking broadly about what they're doing. Are there uh, sort of canonical American landscape photographers that were a, sp a particular influence on you when you were uh, developing your practice? Yeah, if we're talking about the canon, which is its own can of worms, um, and you know that certainly was something that was uh, a part of my education. Um, there was a, a a group, although they wouldn't really call themselves a group. There was an exhibition at the George Eastman House in the 1970s uh, called the New Topographics, and it was a, a, a group of photographers who were working with the landscape in a way that sort of moved away from the idealization of the landscape, um, and they were looking at the way 
human interaction in the land was uh, disrupting uh, the landscape. And it was, you know, really thinking more in terms of critique than it was in terms of natural beauty. Um, and that work, you know, had a pretty profound impact on my thinking about the medium when I was studying photography in the 80s. And um, it, I was very, not only very aware of this work when I was making this new work, but I was also thinking very consciously about not simply wanted to, wanting to ask those same questions over again, but actually wanted to sort of expand on that conversation and, you know, what other questions are there? How else can we sort of look at the landscape and do it without simply sentimentalizing it um, and yet still have a kind of tension in the work to uh, uh, invite critique and conversation. Do you see critique as central to your practice over your entire career? Um, I would say actually no. Um, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm not really situated as a like a politically minded artist. I feel like those things organically reside in the work. Uh, it's all sort of embedded in it, but it's not. I don't have a specific polemic in mind when I'm. Um, making the work. Now, that being said, it's not like I'm putting my head in the sand and ignoring those things. I feel like they're very, you know, especially when it comes to climate change and the environment, that's incredibly important and it's gonna impact everybody's lives. Um, so those, I'm aware of those things and I want them to be a part of the conversation around the work, but I don't feel like that's what drives the work. So we've already spoken about your collaboration with Josh Bonetta on, mm -hmm. on 12 Hertz. Have you collaborated with other partners in, in your projects in the past? Um, yeah, I've collaborated with Josh twice now. When, we, when I did the Lago book in 2015, we uh, spent some time in the desert doing field recordings then. And that was a really fantastic piece that sort of took on its own life and ended up, ended up being published as a vinyl record by Shelter Press in Paris. Um, and it's two 20-minute sort of narratively driven compositions. So that was the first time we did that. And then otherwise, I've, I have collaborated with um, other artists uh, in the form of writing. Nicholas Molnar wrote a, a short story for uh, Electric Line, one of my books from 2012. Uh, Mike Slack, um, who is a photographer from Los Angeles, also contributed a, a written piece to a book called Vitreous China that I did in 2016. We were really interested in the sort of interplay between text and image and how they can kind of bounce off of each other. And so in both of those cases, um, you know, I would completely consider that a collaboration. So now that um, 12 Hertz is on display, um, are you, do you have a new project that you're working on that you might want to tell us about? Um, it, it, that's always one of those questions where I feel like uh, I'm an imposter because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I've <laughs> I've kind of gotten over that. I feel like, hey, yeah, I, I I know what I'm doing. I'll get things. In. I I am working on this in the studio on something. Um, I'm sort of circling back around to uh, some of the methods that I used in Alpine Star in 2006, where I'm looking at a small town newspaper publication. Uh, in Idaho, and I'm re-photographing pre-existing photographs, but I'm, I'm trying to, um, again, move out of the sort of sequential structure that dictated Alpine Star and look at these as more uh, sort of individual pieces. So I think earlier you had mentioned thinking about these pieces as um, objects, not just as means to access something represented. 
Um, say a little bit more about that aspect of, of the way you're thinking about your work at this point. That is that these are these are objects that you're creating, not simply representations of uh, the world out there. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing about photography. On the one hand, it's sort of a transparent window and it's something that you sort of react to based on the purely on the visual information that's in the photograph. On the other hand, um, almost regardless of what you do with it, whether it's a book or an exhibition, you know, unless you're looking at a, an image online, um, these things exist as physical objects in space. There's just no way around it. So when you make a photographic print, it becomes an object by default. Um, and then there are considerations that go into like, okay, what do I do with this object? What is it supposed to look like? How is it supposed to interact with the viewer? And so simple things like, how is it mounted? How is it framed? Um, how is it lit? How does it occupy the space in you know three dimensions? It becomes a three-dimensional problem. So uh, Ram, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question. Okay. Can you can you recommend a contemporary photographer or two who you find particularly inspiring and innovative that you'd like our viewers and listeners to go check out? The first person that comes to mind always is a photographer named Stanley Walakawanambwa. Uh, Stanley is a photographer from Britain and currently uh, teaching at uh, Rhode Island School of Design. He was actually um, a guest artist here at University of Oregon in 2018, I believe. And Stanley is, I think, one of the most important artists of our generation, to put it <laughs> bluntly. I think he's uh, uh, got such a keen intellect. He's a writer. Um, his, the, the, the work that he produces not only deals with images, but it also deals with uh, issues of uh, power, race, history, and he folds it all together through writing and images and, uh, and his writing in general. Uh, he writes about the medium of photography. He just had a, a, a collection of essays published uh, a few months ago. Um, I think he's going to have a huge impact on the medium for a while. So Stanley always comes to mind. Um, uh, Christine Potter uh, is a photographer from, I believe she's currently in Tennessee. Uh, I'm just, uh, she's just an incredible photographer. Um, the, she makes uh, books and prints that um, basically target all of my interest in the medium in terms of representation and just the sort of beauty of what she does. Um, so, you know, those two people immediately come to mind. Well, thanks, Ron, for those recommendations. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Ron Jude, professor of photography at the University of Oregon. His exhibition, 12 Hertz, organized and supported by the Barry Lopez Foundation for Art and Environment, is on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon through March 13th, 2022. Thanks so much for watching.